I say to people, if you want to imagine what Gethsemane was about, Jesus will take all the hate, the rage, the bigotry, the insecurities, the fears of everything, of every human being that's ever lived or ever will live, and he's going to fall on him like a meteor on the cross. And so consequently, I want to say this too as, as a sidebar, it's not because Jesus is being punished by God in place of us. It is because the fact that because we have fallen away from God, we poisoned ourselves, eating of the fruit. We unplugged from God. And God's not looking to punish us. He's looking to save us. God desires that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What punishes us is actually just simply the consequences of our own actions as a human race. So this is what's happening is, at the same time, he's taking all these toxins in, but he's also transfiguring us in the process. And what comes out of the tomb the third day is humanity brought to the full completion, restoration with God and to be restored to a partnership with God, which is what God always desired from the beginning. That's the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created to be in a partnership with God, to cultivate creation, but bring creation to completion. Okay, if we really study seriously the early rabbis and not the Sunday school little books that we had growing up as kids, that often theologically could have been a little flaky, you know, the idea that Adam and Eve were innocent, but they weren't perfect. They hadn't eaten of, of the tree of life yet. They I'm sorry, Father, you said if we really study the early rabbis, right. the early fathers, but some of the rabbis' rabbinic writings at the time. So if we, if we look at it, even the literature at the time of Jesus and just before, the, Jew, the literature of ancient Israel and so forth, there's a sense of this, as well as in the early Christian writings. So my point being is that God comes to be part of our life in order to heal our broken humanity and bring it to the full potential that he always wanted for us. In fact, the early Christians would have said that the Incarnation would have happened even without the fall. The difference would have been Jesus wouldn't have had to die. That God wanted us to be fully united with him. And the only way we could, we could be united with him was not by our own efforts, but by God reaching out and taking our human realities, our created realities, into himself and uniting us fully to him and him to us. Now, having said all that, having said all that, Okay, having said all that, and if you have any questions about it, I suggest Peter read uh, Peter Butanov's book on Genesis. I'm not going to go into it all right now. I know it's a different way of thinking, but if we dig into the early understandings, it's, it's not quite, like I said, what the Sunday school books sometimes uh, presented to us. Anyway, um, so here we have then now present with us this reality of Christ, and that reality becomes more manifest in the concept of church, church being the actual body of Christ. And that when we gather together, as Paul says, that's what manifests this reality, that Christ is still present. The church is an extension of Christ's presence, even physically upon earth as in heaven. Not just as a sociological, let's get together. This is part and parcel of our growing in union with God and partnering with God. It is an essential. They would not have understood in the early church the idea of being a Christian without being part of the body of Christ in the sense of communally. That would be like saying to the apostles, I'm married all by myself. That would make no sense. 
But the place of the church is the place of transfiguration and the, and the place where we are changed. We are allowing God to touch us, where we gather together to worship, not to make God do anything, but to make ourselves open to the presence of God and the grace of the Spirit. And the purpose of that is, of course, to make us into, by grace, what Christ is by nature. To become, that's what the word Christian means, Christ in miniature. So, as we look at this, then we look at the story here in the Gospel of, you know, after the Transfiguration, they, Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain, and there's a man who's brought his son, and he sees Jesus, and he runs to him, and he says, Lord, he says, look, I brought my son here, and actually, the, the Greek word means uh, to be affected by the moon. So it's, it's not epilepsy specifically, it's just anything that causes these seizures. And there was a belief that somehow the cycles of the mood, it could be epilepsy, it could have been a, a, a form of autism, or whatever, we don't know exactly. Because the Greek words, like I said, simply means, you know, like the moon sickness, lunar sickness. But it doesn't matter. And that's not going to go into all that. That's not the relevant point. Unless we see that God has control through Jesus, even over the moon <laughs> and everything else beyond that. Anyway, I brought him to your disciples, and, but they could not cure him. And Jesus' response is he scolds the disciples. He scolds the disciples. And this is very poignant because in the chronology of Matthew here, chapter 17, already prior to, sometime prior, maybe a year even or so prior to this, or two years, and you see this in chapter 10 of Matthew, is he sends out the disciples two by two to heal, to cast out demons, and so forth. And they even come back and say, you know, look, it's been great, it's been happening, you know. But they all get back together in chapter 16 after all they're traveling around and so forth. And Jesus is coming as he's listening to all of them. Who do people say that I am? And they go, one of the prophets, John the Baptist, back from the dead, blah, 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 blah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, speaking for the other guys, goes, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So you have all that, this great story of even during Jesus' ministry, they go out and they pray, they, they heal, they cast out demons, they have you know, Christ's authority with them. But what happened by chapter 17 is like, what? What? And I have a suspicion with this because of, in this case, uh, Matthew talks about the mustard seed imagery. Uh, the other guys will talk about prayer and fasting. But they kind of go together, and you'll see why as I'm talking here. Mustard seeds were like dandelion seeds. They could go all over the place. They'd invade everything. You know, the, the mustard tree was not some big gigantic tree. It was basically a, a big bush. But like dandelions, they were a pain. <laughs> and the image of the mustard seed for us means how God, how the, the reality of Jesus permeates the way dandelion seeds just simply seem to invade every little nook and cranny of our lawns. 
how the mustard seed is, does God invade every nook and cranny of our life? Do we let him plant himself in every nook and cranny? And be faithful to, to Christ wherever we are in, in each little nook and cranny of, of our life there, that we're aware of God's presence. And I think this is really something that, you know, in a world that it distracts us, I'm, I'm going to, you know, jump to the synoptic Gospels that talk about Jesus saying about prayer and fasting. This would have helped with the, the healing of the young boy. Prayer and fasting is a pattern that we have in our lives. And prayer is, of course, just even being consistently trying to connect with Jesus. Not just the arrow prayers that we throw out to God during the day, but having times alone with him. Even if it's for five, ten minutes or whatever, just sit and soak in his presence. Just sit and soak in his presence. Even if we don't always have the words. Even if all we're feeling is pain. You know, like Paul says in Romans, you know, sometimes the Spirit prays through us with groans and sighs too deep for words. So there is that, I'm just taking, you know, a few minutes and, and you know, the, the Psalms talk about seven times a day I will, I will come to you and pray to you. Um, the Didache, a document written around the year 70 in the first century, called the, the Teaching and the Handbook of the Twelve Apostles, suggests saying the Lord's Prayer just three times. Stop wherever you are, say the Lord's Prayer three times in a, in a day. And say it, but really think about it. Don't just rattle it off, but stop, say, soak in what you're saying, and go on with the rest of your day. Like the seeds of the mustard tree, little, little places it hits, and hits the crannies and the nooks in our lives. Now, fasting is not just from food, and everybody tends to think of that more. And sadly, it becomes too much the focus in some cases. Because um, I've met people in my life, even growing up, where sometimes, as long as you fast 40 days or whatever, but then their lifestyle looks like anything but Christ. <laughs> but I fasted, you know, well, all you did was diet then. But it's not about the food, it's also about, and I'm thinking about this more and more after I read this article several months ago about workism, this idea that we're consumed, the world tries to consume us. Corporate America tries to eat us up and eat up our time. And where can we make space, even if it's little columns, as, as has been said in, in some situations, you know, like having the column of time, like with your, 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 your friends or your spouse or your kids. And it may not be the whole evening or the whole weekend like you'd like, etc. but having just a column, a column within that, that nook and cranny that you connect, you connect, you connect. Instead of letting the world fill the nook and crannies of our lives with everything. And we see that for all the busyness that the world just really almost dictates and accelerates, it hasn't changed our lives. The world is, people are more suicidal, depressed, everything. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because we live in a society that, you know, in some places, is trying to push God out of the picture, it's like I define reality, I define, I, it's all on me to define reality. And you know what? 
I can sit there and say to myself, I can work 24, 26 hours a day and it won't hurt me. <laughs> or whatever. Well, it will. It will. We have to take space. We're not immortal. We haven't eaten of the tree of life yet. And so what is it, the times in our lives, we just we need to stop, take a breath, sit. And sometimes the things we stress out about at that moment, there's nothing we can do about it. And rather than just mentally absorb all of it, just take a break, sit, breathe, cleansing breaths, be aware of the presence of God. Sit in front of your icon. Just sit with God. Let God sit with us. And the church is, is really the place that this gets manifest, you know. I remember Father Spiridon, who was the pastor at St. Matthew's before I got here. And whenever he saw anybody in church in the liturgy looking at their watch, he would, go, he would actually come out and go, what's the rush? What's the rush? Don't you like being in God's presence? He likes us being in his presence. So, how do we learn to relax and take that in? Now, it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy, but I'm blown away by Paul here. Now, and he writes most of his letters from prison, and I think we have to keep in mind that prison then, in those places, even like the normal jail, was not like the jails today at least in America, okay, unless you go to Guantanamo. But that's another issue. But anyway, but most of the, the places of incarceration here compared to what Paul sat in and others is not as difficult. Paul's in chains. Paul's sitting in jail cells with fecal material because anytime it rained, your cell got filled with water, sometimes up to your knees. There were no bathrooms. There was a bucket, maybe, maybe, if you're lucky. And what about the times his feet were in stocks? You can't move. You can't move. And yet, you, he writes incredible things like, I've learned to be content in all things, like he says in Colossians, which blows me away. And he's writing to the Corinthians, here he's being a little because they're kind of some of them are kind of full of themselves in that way they think uh, you know we are the descendants of the great philosophers we are smart we were you know they, they used to like to talk philosophy they even hire a philosopher to come and give a talk just to listen to them talk kind of like you invite a comedian <laughs> to come and do a routine and so forth didn't mean you had to do anything about whatever they talked about but it was it was entertaining and it was just like, I can talk philosophy. And I remember talking to somebody who had a major in that. I'm not against a major in philosophy. But you, you could tell it was all academic. Because I listened to him and I said, tell me, how does that affect your real life? And he couldn't tell me. <laughs> so here's Paul. He's writing to the Corinthians who think they're, they're just brilliant. You know, and this, look at, we have these great philosophers. That's our heritage, blah, blah, blah. And so he's been a little cynical here. I think that God exhibited us apostles as last of all, as though sentenced to death, because we become the spectacle 
The off-scouring is an interesting word. It's like, you know, when you clean a pot and get the rust off of the world to angels and mortals. We are fools for Christ, but you're wise. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, and we in disrepute. To the present hour, we're hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We grow weary from the work of our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We become like the rubbish of the world and the dregs of all things to this very day. I'm not writing this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my, the children that I love. For though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And I think that's the thing is, church is a place that it's, it's not just a corporate entity, it is a relational entity. God is here. He's intimate. He's close to us, like in the Eucharist, where he, he offers himself continuously in the Eucharist, which includes the, hearing the word of God and applying it to our lives and living it out as a community as well as personally. So I appeal to you, be imitators of me. And for this reason, I'm sending you Timothy, who's my beloved faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ Jesus as I teach them everywhere in every church. That the church is a relation, not just a sacramental machine or dispensary. I mean, sacraments are important, don't get me wrong. And that's one of our things. And what defines church is the sacramental life. You know, just because you gather to pray doesn't mean that's where church is manifest. Church is manifest where we gather together to literally uncover the physical presence of the risen Christ on earth as in heaven, in and among us, which means like the bread and the wine, like Jesus said. Do this to make me present again in your, among you. That's what church is. Quite frankly, uh, churches without sacraments or that reduce it to simply a little glass of grape juice and so forth, God bless them, it's like a sexless marriage. You know, it's like it's nice, it's everything, but the fuller picture, the deeper reality of the relationship is everything. I mean, what distinguishes my relationship with my wife compared to anybody else? Somebody could live in my house, we could do things together, work together, but the physical connection is what distinguishes what my relationship with my wife is compared to the others. The Eucharist is what de defines what my relationship is to this God compared to anyone else. But my point is here that it's a relational thing. It's a relational. Now, I don't know if I do a good job as, of being a father to the community, and sometimes I know I fall short. But I always understand that that's what God has invited me to and what my responsibilities are to, in Him. But the fact that we're coming together as a family that physically united, just like my children are united to each other because they come from my flesh and blood, my, me and my wife's flesh and blood, they are my flesh and blood. And the Eucharist shows that we are the flesh and blood of Christ with each other. So we gather together as part of Christ's flesh and blood and display that and manifest that in every Eucharist, which includes, though, the teachings, not just coming up and taking the bread and wine and going home like McDonald's. It is about becoming Christ, hearing his teachings, chewing on them, digesting them, being together, connecting connecting. 
and letting the seeds of, of the mustard tree, as it were, the gospel permeate, touch the little nooks and crannies. And that's a process, whether it's through personal prayer or as we connect through the week, whatever that is, whatever that is. So we're not just reduced to church being something I go to Sunday mornings and then walk out the door until the next Sunday. So may the Lord bless us with the mustard seeds. May we see where he's trying to just hit the little nooks and crannies. I'm not saying we don't have issues, stressors, extenuating circumstances. Please don't hear that. I'm not saying we drop everything and become like monastics. Okay? But I'm saying just be aware of the little places God's trying to plant himself. And let him plant himself. That Did you ever think that you'd feel the presence of God sitting with you watching a movie and enjoying you with it? Do we ever think of God as, you know, taking, being in the car with us? Really? Or when we're with people we care about, that he's there? And I'll close with this, and I forgive the repetition because I'm getting older if you've heard this story before, but I'm closing with this happened to me many years ago before I was ordained and I was <laughs> you know trying to prep for GREs to kind of finish my doctorate once and for all and I took a week off from work and even studied and everything else and just filled my day with you know how do you approach the GRE which is like as we know it's not about information as much as learning how to take a test of that that kind anyway and I was so busy and I remember um, you know, to embarrass one of my daughters here, that um, we used to get, you know, <laughs> before I was ordained, we had a lot more time together. But they were, and they were used to that. But, um, you know, Leah was four years old, and she was used to seeing me, instead of me locked up in, in my office type of thing. And so, I would, before I'd come down for dinner, I would take, an, you know, time to pray in my office, you know, trying to finish off this, to study. And one day she walked in, it was near the end of the week, and she said, Dad, I haven't seen you all week. And she goes, can we spend time together? And I, and I remember turning to the icon I had of Christ in my office, which we have now in, in our dining room. And I looked at him and I said, okay, I could spend time with you really like formally praying, but is it okay if I spend time with you and my daughter? That I just spend time with my daughter in your presence. And so we did. And Leah talked about whatever a four-year-old little girl talks about, Barbies and everything else, ice cream and uh, animals, or aminals as she used to call them. But you know what? In that hour, I felt, I, rarely I felt God's presence as intensely as I did that hour. The nooks and the crannies.